Welcome back, Warriors. Tunse, Sego, Ani Bujou, Quay Nin Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. But it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And as most of you by now, if you've been listening to this podcast, I am from the Mi'kmaq Nation, and we've had many guests on this podcast who also come from the Mi'kmaq Nation. We've talked to Mi'kmaq warrior Sagej Ward from Eskinobidij about what it means to be a warrior, that spirit of love and compassion for your people. I also, uh, on this podcast, uh, shared clips from an event that we had with Migamahan, who's a Mi'kmaq elder from Eskinobidij, who also talked about the importance of treaties and just how important they are to protect our rights. We also heard from Cheryl Maloney. She's a well-known Mi'kmaq advocate from Sebeganegdi that led the fight against Alton Gas from poisoning our rivers so that our fish could live. Her son, Brandon Maloney, also worked in fisheries, but he's now become a counselor at Sebeganegdi, and he was also on the podcast talking about the ongoing issue of violations of our trees, specifically in relation to fishing. And, of course, Sebeganegdi Chief Michael Sack, who shared with us everything that's been happening from the RCMP, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, the federal government, and everything that's been involved in all of the violence against our Mi'kmaq fishers. The Mi'kmaq Nation has seen many generations of racism, violence, dispossession, and oppression from all levels of government, federal, provincial, and municipal, as well as industry and some segments of society. On the one hand, governments claim they support our rights to be self-determining. On the other hand, they send in law enforcement or take us to court whenever we do try to govern our own affairs, especially when it impacts economic affairs. But despite this, the Mi'kmaq people, who are also referred to as Ilnu, have always been really strong people and we have never surrendered our lands or our sovereignty. And despite our nation being divided up into smaller First Nations all over Mi'kma'ki, we continue to live, assert, and defend our sovereignty, our lands, and our right to govern ourselves and all of our affairs. Today's guest is one of those leaders who is standing by our rights to govern our people's territories and economic activities. Sasha Labilwa is the elected chief of my First Nation, Ugbaganjig, Eel River Bar First Nation in northern New Brunswick. And she is truly a leader for this generation. We were so happy when she got elected. She has a long history of contributing to our First Nation and clearly cares very much about the well-being of our people. And I would also add that she's one of those chiefs that stays in constant communication with her band members, not just on reserve, but off reserve and no matter where we live. And that's super important to us, making sure that we have strong governance in our communities. Welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast, Chief Sasha Labilwa. Thank you, Quay Quay Pam. It's very nice to see you here virtually. Although we're so far from each other, it's really good to connect. I'm honored of your introduction. You, you speak highly of me and it just kind of 
feels really great to, to get that positive recognition. When you um, think about it, anyone in a leadership position, you're probably mostly going to hear all of the problems, right? All of the crises, all of the emergencies, all of that stuff. And I just don't think we take enough time to say, hey, thanks for actually responding to emails, posting information online, participating in things like this podcast, actually responding and being responsive to band members. And so I really appreciate it. Plus, I've always been a fan of how you are as a leader. I'm really thankful and honored that you're on uh, this podcast. And so I also want to thank you for taking your time because I know we're also in a pandemic. And mm-hmm. you can imagine that has probably tripled your work. And so maybe before we get started, you could introduce yourself the way that you like to. Okay. Deloise Sasha Labilwa. My married name is Kennedy. I'm uh, originally from this lovely community of Bigantic, or known as Eel River Bar First Nation. We are in northern New Brunswick. I was born here out of the local hospital in Dalhousie. I lived here all my life with the exception of being away for university. My mom is May Labilwa, and my dad is Bruno Lacouf. He's from Dalhousie. And my grandparents are Margaret Pictou Labilwa and Michael. I come from a family that has, I would say, a great spirit of entrepreneurship. My grandmother, whether it was selling wreaths or selling seafood or finding ways to make ends meet. She always had that entrepreneurial spirit. She was kind to people and she she was always smiling and selling something or other. So we, a lot of us have, I guess, developed that trade over time. And my grandparents were also chiefs in the 70s here in Okpigancic. So I think I also was blessed with some of her leadership skills. And I guess just having those genuine desires to try and help out to try and improve on our economic situation and just the overall well-being of our community and our surrounding neighborhood here in Eel River Bar. I'd like to mention that I'm a mother of uh, four wonderful boys. My four boys! They they range in ages from 17. My oldest is uh, Harley, he's 17. Fox is soon to be 15. Uh, Bo is seven and Blaze is five. My main role is is being a mother and my other main role is being a leader here. And I've always taken on that role, whether it be as an elected chief or in council or with sports even and in economic development. That's amazing. Really a house full with four boys. (laughs) I know I have two boys, but oh my goodness, four boys. And then also the responsibility of a larger extended family and the community at large. And then of course, other uh, obligations outside of the community. So that's a lot. And I know a lot of people often wonder, what is the path? We often ask guests on this podcast, what was your path to where you are today? And I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit about your journey. How did you get to where you are today as chief? Honestly, like it's not something that I seen myself doing growing up. I, I never had this dream that, that I would become chief like some people, but I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I came out of high school. I was always good in sciences and math. And so I was gently nudged to go into engineering and at the time 
things really didn't follow in that path. And I switched over to a business administration degree, which I had completed, and then just fell into this world of economic development. I started a career with Olnaweg as a business service officer and morphed into a commercial accounts manager. So that's where I started making a lot of connections with communities in New Brunswick, leaders, just band members from different communities and the economic development officers from those communities, because these people were the links to, I guess, my clients working at Olnaweg. And I was just intrigued with that position in economic development. I, I started thinking to myself how it was such a cool job. And if I could ever have a job like that, I'd be blessed. But I just didn't think it was possible. Like we had one officer in our community and he was doing a great job. So I just really didn't see a vacancy happening. Lo and behold, about seven years later, this happened. And I said, well, I'm going to go for it. Why not? So I was successful. And I think that's where the path really started. I was exposed to a lot of women and men who worked in these positions as directors or economic development officers. And I think like from each and every one of these colleagues in my network, I, I admired their skills and they were mentors to me. I could mention the Lynn Poole Hughes and the Joanna Bernards and the Penny Polchis, Anita Ward. I admired their qualities and I strive to learn from them. And the teachings that came out of economic development uh, was always around nation building good governance, building our own institutions and bringing language and culture back. And that's where the path really started because you could have all kinds of ideas, but if if these ideas aren't endorsed at the elected level of government, it's you're working on plans that are sometimes put on a shelf or not implemented. So I guess that's where I, I want it to be a part of the council here in our community. And then it just morphed into like the next level. So that's my passion is like building communities, nation building and economic development. Being here now, though, I recognize that there's other really important areas that we, we need to focus on, like our mental health and our culture, if that kind of explains my path. <laughs> well, that's quite a path. And I think the yeah. fact that you also served as a band counselor before being elected as chief, that must have helped in some way in terms of getting getting experience in that particular role. Yes, definitely. You learn quite a bit in two years. It's really fast and it's never long enough to accomplish long-term visioning, but you do learn a lot. And I felt that I had more to offer to try and I guess, expose a team to these, I'll call them economic development teachings or like the Harvard model teachings or nation building governance. It's all around this area that I hope to build capacity amongst our team and our employees and even just young community members like to start 
dreaming up an environment where everyone can prosper. And that's so incredible. It's to have that kind of larger holistic vision as Mm -hmm. opposed to what Indian Affairs would want us to do and just focus on the day-to-day administration of programs and services. And the fact that you focus on nation building is so important. And I'm wondering what it's been like since you've been elected things have been happening, things that you probably couldn't, none of us could have predicted. What's Mm -hmm. it been like serving at Ilverbar as the chief? It's been like really great. And it's been like a roller coaster of different emotions. We were sworn in in June and there was just so much positivity. And we as a council, we hit the ground running because before our term started, We wanted to develop a code of conduct for ourselves. We wanted to focus on like a work plan that kind of encompassed like the the two years to come and like what we needed to accomplish, what we needed to get done. It was really intense. We were in all day long meetings for I'd say the first 14 days, just like trying to get a grasp on how things were going to be and what we were going to prioritize in relation to all all the departments like housing, health, and economic development, culture, education. We had really big dreams. We had all kinds of like big projects. We had land acquisition. We had a new neighborhood. We wanted to plan for a standalone education building. There was just so much to accomplish and, and how to tackle all these big item tickets. We went from that intensity to planning for our weekly meetings. And then I think I would say we had a really good momentum going. And of course, we were faced with COVID like everyone else. We had our first annual general meeting under this term. Like transparency is about talking to the community, having them come in, doing community meetings. And that just threw all of that into the garbage because we couldn't meet in person with large gatherings. We had set forward all these great objectives. So we've had to work around that. We have alternate options still in place but you go from being on a high to being like really in a panic state with the going from yellow zone regions to like red zone complete lockdown to back to work to and I'm like really happy and lucky to report we haven't had any positive COVID cases in our community. We were really proactive. Some people probably thought we were a bit crazy. When you think of just losing one elder, it's not it's not something we were willing to gamble with. So yeah, lots of ups and downs. We just started back on full-time hours. Like we went from three to four to five day. So it's been a crazy roller coaster, but um, way more satisfying and gratifying moments for us, I'd say. And what's really great, even though we're chronically underfunded, we never have enough resources, and that that comes from government, that still you were able to take swift actions, that you acted out of a sense of 
prioritizing human health, safety, and well-being first to make sure that we didn't lose an elder. And that's so important. Or I could send you an email and say, what's happening? Or you would post information on Facebook for people to see what's going on. And there's information on the website so that there's like this constant communication because Part of the panic for people is just not knowing what's happening, what resources are available, who can we contact, are there vaccines, but you have made sure that there's been like an information flow. And how hard was that to organize last minute? I can say it was definitely uh, really stressful and, and it was challenging, but I really want to point out that it wasn't like an I thing. We had a great team and I'm so grateful for for the staff around me. What we did was we developed right away, we call it our pandemic uh, response team. So we had um, at the time, our director of health, we had our director of operations, we had our communications guy because he was helpful. We had someone from child and family services and economic development, we had myself. And then we had second level to the pandemic response team was chief and counsel. So this this team, like we'd be constantly being proactive, but of course we had to react to the level of risk. If there was a local outbreak, we'd be on Zoom at 10 p.m. or if it whatever it called for, we all got the hang of being virtual really quick. And I can't express how if I didn't have that team to work with, that we wouldn't have accomplished what we did. We were able to secure a lot of different programming to deliver food cards, to put checkpoints in place when we needed it the most, to organize the vaccine clinics, which are just as recent as till now, just to conduct our essential services while everyone was on lockdown. We had to make operational plans as per things change. So it was like a constant adapting our operations and, and working around what was happening with the level of, of risk. So sometimes you, you get a panic and you're like, oh my God, I have to get a letter out tonight. So you're going crazy with that and you, you got to send that to the communications guy to upload it on Facebook because people are asking questions and that part was probably gave me quite a few gray hairs but overall I think we had a we had a really good team in place and I think our community members as long as they knew what was going on it it, it just was that much better like we always tried to ensure that we had a weekly update for a while we were doing videos from chief and council which was something different it was fun and I don't know it's just been quite the roller coaster good thing about all of this and what people will get from this podcast is that being a chief isn't you're not the only person that's doing things that it's like chief and council that chiefs are actually one of the counselors and that chief and council are part of a larger team of directors and staff and community members and elders and and I think that's um I think is probably one of the reasons why Il Rivera has had so much success as of late, especially during a pandemic. And I'm just so relieved to hear that while I can't be home right now because of the pandemic, I'm literally in COVID central, that knowing that all my family back home is safe, that that means a lot because everything else is really secondary. Mm-hmm. 
And not everybody knows all the different First Nations across this country. I feature different people, different advocates and warriors and leaders from literally all different First Nations. And so for those who aren't familiar with Buganjig or Eel River Bar, maybe you could tell us a little bit about our community for everyone who isn't familiar. We are a small coastal community. We're located in northern New Brunswick. We're north of a small village uh, called Char. And we're, we're next to the town of Dalhousie, our surrounding neighbors. We're close to the border that goes to Quebec. Our, we have our Mi'kmaq neighbors uh, from Listagush just across the water. We're a community that we all have strong, I'll say, sport spirit ingrained in us. I think our different generations have always participated in hockey. It goes way back. And if I didn't mention our men's hops hockey team and our Lady Falcons hockey team, I'd be doing a little bit of a disservice because it's it's one of the things that brings all families and everyone together at times sometimes when we're not together because like anyone else we're not perfect we have intergenerational trauma that stems from residential schools that stems from racism and not everyone is healed we I guess we're a product of history (laughs) and we haven't always had that how would you say the better deal as indigenous people And we're still growing and we're still healing from that. Exactly. And one of the things your grandmother was most famous for was her commitment to the language and protecting the language. And for people who don't know, the language of our nation is Mi'kmaq language. And so I think most people in Near River Bar speak English, French, and or Mi'kmaq. What's, what do you, would you consider the state of the language right now on, on the res? Is it still being passed down from generation to generation or is it, is it a bit at risk? It's definitely at risk, I would say. We do have a language program here for our children who attend Head Start and preschool, we, we have a really great teacher, Miss Becky. She's my aunt, and she, she does have language and culture near and dear to her heart, but she's only one person. And the speakers that we would have had, like the elders, we have a few in community. But, and we also have like youth that have been around the language, but they've taken it upon themselves to attend language classes like Rosalie Labilwa. We also have some younger people in our community that are not originally from here, but we have a couple of men. We have Chad Denny and we have Thomas Julian, like they come from Nova Scotia and they're, they speak, but, and they're able to uh, help out their immediate families, but we definitely need to do some work with our language and there's small pots of funding available for language but it's not enough we don't have our own schools so how do we promote language at a school that is i guess designed not not with our cultural needs in in mind they're great to implement things within the schools but like a lot of funding although there's funding 
for us and for our kids, most times we don't have the control or the say. That gets dictated by the province of New Brunswick, whether it be the Minister of Education or at the school board level or the superintendent. We get funding for our enhancement dollars and half of it has to go like to the school. I'm an optimist at heart. I'm always optimistic, but I'm also a realist and have to recognize that we're still living in a system that there's systematic racism and we're we're not benefiting how we should be. It's definitely one of the issues that we have to keep pushing on. Royal Commission, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing, they all said we've Government's got to step up in terms of supporting language, in terms of funding and infrastructure and capacity and training. And hopefully we can do that so that we don't lose our language and that there's more capacity to be able to provide the language immersion programs and things like that. And so I'm glad it's definitely a consideration. You come from a family who's always cared so much about language. So that's so important. I want to switch a bit to the economics of living on the North Shore? And what are some of the main economic activities that help support the band itself or community members? Here in our community, I would have to say a big uh, piece of our economic uh, success is gasoline, fisheries, and gaming. (laughs) If I had to go one, two, three, or in whatever order. We've always had a good long-term visioning when it comes to economic development. Even before my time working as a student here, the leadership of the day in economic development, they had like a vision for the future and, and that included our truck stop. It included the expansion of our community and, and many things. We do have a full service truck stop where we service the retail customers and also the how the truckers at the wholesale also in our fisheries we have we have a commercial fisheries operation for crab but other than that our communal licenses are dispersed to individuals in the community to support themselves and their families and it might not come back to the community some of the licenses but that's one or two or three families per license that aren't depending on the band or depending on government or things like that. They're able to support themselves. I guess uh, that's what I could comment on there. And we really have an active economic development team who we have land set aside that are to be designated for commercial use across from our truck stop. One of the challenges there is to get designation or even for our additional lands we've purchased to have them added to reserve for reserve status it always falls on federal and provincial government to just there's just so many reasons to like prolong make uh, delay postpone and as uh, you're probably familiar with a designation in order to be successful in economic development like the the big the Millbrook, the member twos, the Madawaskas, we have to designate the lands to give security to industry to come in and in, invest in our lands and to be able to provide a long-term lease. There's another way that we're uh, relying on government as this patriarchal um, yeah. way. Please, can we do this? Yeah. Sure. 
<laughs> exactly. And having worked at Justice Canada and Indian Affairs as the Director of Lands, I can surely attest to all of the unreasonable delays in terms of doing the surveys, getting the approvals, getting the order in councils. And at different points in time, the Atlantic region had one of the worst rates just for additions to reserve process, not even designations, but years and years to do something that should take at most months. And that's been a problem with the region for a long time. It's a problem with the federal government in general, the fact that they hold that kind of control. But think about it, every day that they delay, that's not economic development that you're able to do, that your band members can benefit from, where they can get jobs and keep the income circulating within the community. And as someone who comes from an economic development background, that must be so frustrating for you oh. sometimes when you have a plan, but it's not moving. Oh, yeah. We're talking years. I, I did a research paper once and I did it on ATRs and I just said, I'm sure I'm, I know what the results are going to be. But when I actually looked on the website, what I was, I was looking at the percentage of successful ATRs that they considered, I guess they had a two to seven year time frame. And they had the two types. They had the ones that were by legal obligation. And then they had the ones that were by like just community additions. And I think the success rate, if I recall, it was around 10% were successful in that two to seven year time frame. And about 90% of them weren't. And all the ones that were successful were by legal obligation. So that also tells me if a community is going to be proactive and go and use their hard-earned money to purchase lands with the dreams of developing projects and having economic development, you, you, it's, the odds aren't in your favor and the timeline isn't there. Like to do business with partners and <laughs> at the speed of business is just, it's pretty much impossible. And it means you have to be creative and just keep branching out in as many different areas as possible, which is what you do. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today was this whole business of cannabis, because that has been quote unquote legalized in the country. And the Mi'kmaq as Mi'kmaq chiefs in New Brunswick have said, yes, we have the power to decide whether we regulate it and engage in the business or whether we decide it's not for our communities. Yet we saw in the news that the RCMP raided your reserve and arrested three men. Can you tell us a bit about what happened? What was going on there? Sure, yeah. But before that, like, I just want to, I guess, reiterate like some of the comments you made because federal government recognizes that we have the sovereign right to govern ourselves. Even Health Canada recognizes in relation to cannabis, we, ha we have the right to put our own laws in place and, and govern ourselves within our own community. Communities. However, we still face these types of inconsistencies when it happens to come around laws that our governments put in place. We, we could put a simple BCR in place that evicts a community member from community and, and the RCMP aren't able to come and enforce our laws. But yet it, it's so easy for them to come and prioritize prioritize raiding a cannabis shop. So what happened in, in our community, there was a shop that was, I'd say, in operation for about a year. The community is all aware of the owners. It was two younger men, community 
band members. And what bothers me is that I know for a fact in some of the other communities, our CMP will communicate with chief or chief and council or provide, oh, this is what's going on. We plan on raiding this establishment or whatever the criminal charges may be. They let us know what's going on. In this instance, our chief and council, we had no idea that this was going to happen. We certainly didn't give permission for them to come in. Some people believe they, there's a common courtesy that they could have requested permission. They didn't do that. But I guess my area of, my biggest area of concern is that they arrested the elder who was residing at the residence, I'll say adjacent to the cannabis shop. He wasn't the owner. He was the landlord of, of the separate building. RCMP had a search warrant for a specific address. The address didn't match the cannabis shop. Even there, it's questionable. But, and we all knew like this elder, okay, he had a couple of strokes previously. His health wasn't the best. They went into his home with weapons and proceeded to arrest him. He wasn't fully clothed. He, <laughs> they didn't give him that respect or decency. He, they, they arrested him. They took him down his driveway and even out in the street in the open and ambulance had to be called. There were several community members on the scene trying to plead with RCMP to plead with them to say, listen, this elder, you need to give him some space. He's having a hard time. And at the end of the day, he had to leave in an ambulance. The two younger men, they were arrested. The one just was cooperative. The other one, he was annoyed, but I just think the manner in which it was done, that there was no respect, there was no consideration, there was no consultation. They didn't ask for permission. And what really drives me is that the media was on the scene before the RCMP. So obviously the RCMP tipped the media off to give them that common courtesy, had no consideration for our chief and council as government of the community. And that's the problem when we're trying to have a relationship with the province of New Brunswick. They don't consider us as equals or on the same page, or I feel they don't consider us as government. We're just the First Nations here. And, you know, that that's just so apparent when we talk about systematic racism. All 15 First Nations of New Brunswick pleaded for an inquiry in relation to systematic racism, in relation to the two shootings that happened with Rodney Levi and with Chantal in the Edmondson area. And it just was like always a reason why we couldn't do this. But now we see in a recent McLean's article, the premier can so easily get an inquiry to cover his butt when it comes to racially targeting a local doctor here from Camelton. I just, I just hate to accuse people and point the finger, but come on, <laughs> if it's that easy, then why deny 15 of the First Nation communities here in New Brunswick that request that I think everyone else thinks uh, should happen. 
Of course. And your governments. That's the thing. It's not like you're just 15 groups of golf clubs or some other. You're literally governments. It's your territory. It's your people that are being shot and killed, suffering from racism, being kept out of like our resources, our economies. It's just so federally, provincially and police controlled that it even puts you in a spot. And I've heard from chiefs before that they would love to speak out about this more. But if you speak out, then there's also consequences where governments will be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be funding this project. Well, that, that's right in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you, ha- I can think of no other reason why the RCMP would call the media first instead of calling the local government other than it continues to perpetuate this stereotype that First Nations are somehow bad or they're criminals, and then that way the public will support the government as opposed to criticize them for consistently cracking down on what is a legal, like it's a legal thing now. Unless the issue is, are you just worried about someone taking a part of your monopoly? Most definitely. That's the opinion I could It's my opinion, and I think a lot of the other chiefs share that opinion. And community members and and communities, there's no reason, there's no other reason. It's that control piece and that monopoly to not let anyone else get ahead. And as First Nations, we need that economic help where we're only trying to grow our economy, grow our capacity. We're, we have a lot of the communities have bylaws in place that run parallel with what the province of New Brunswick has in place. We're not proposing to do anything different or to partake in illegal activity. We actually have, it's my intention to put a bylaw in place that that supports everything that New Brunswick already has in place. We're, we're going to do it just the same, if not better. So I don't see the concern. We, we don't want to have a pot shop at every second house on our street and be known uh, as uh, the place to come do your shady business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So where do we go from here? We saw after this happened, it didn't get much you know, media attention, probably more local than it did nationally. But I noticed that the Mi'kmaq chiefs did issue a press release and say that this is unacceptable, that this violates your right to be self-determining and that every they were going to consider what the next steps would be taken as a whole as all the Mi'kmaq chiefs. And one of those things they were thinking was maybe you're going to have permission explicit permission to come on our reserves if this is how you're going to behave. Has there any been any movement? Are you still talking about what could the potential next steps be? We've been trying to get ahead. I won't say um, for everyone to have their own policing, but we definitely need representation that is going to be familiar with our people, with our way of life, and to come into our communities with the intentions of de-escalating situations, not coming in with force and those kind of tactics that that happen. Like, we don't need those kind of tactics. And we haven't had much support from our governments in this area. So I couldn't say what all the next steps are, because I'll I'll also say not all RCMP are bad. We still need their services and we still need their support. 
But how do we weed out? How do we address the problems that exist? I think it's first by recognizing that they're there. And right now we're, I don't know, we're <laughs> what we need to do to, to get that, that support from our uh, partners at the provincial and federal levels. I think sometimes it just comes from the people. And I think part of what you're doing here today is helping educate a much larger audience, people who have the wealth, the power, the influence to push governments in certain directions. And I think we just need to keep pushing because yeah. Eel River Bar is a very special place. And I'm sure you have lots of great plans still for economic development and nation building and everything else and what we're going to look like post-pandemic resuming powwows and community gatherings and things like that so is there anything that our listeners can do to support you right now on anything it doesn't just have to be with regards to the rcmp doing the raid but anything at eel river Oh, I would recommend step one, find out what an ally is. Do a little bit of reading on what an ally is and become an ally. Basically, in a nutshell, support us, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. Just try it, try and, and learn and open up your hearts and minds and go forward. <laughs> <laughs> to this better way forward. That's awesome because in this podcast, we always focus on this podcast being educational, but for a purpose. So not just for information, not just for entertainment, but in fact, education for action. So you know, take up the responsibility as an ally to learn more, like you said, but then what can you do about it? Can you write a letter? Can you send an email? Can you make a donation? Can you push governments? Can you share the information far and wide? Sometimes just sharing things like this podcast gets it to a wider audience, to other people who are in positions that can do things. You just hit the nail on the head in terms of allies have responsibilities too. And I'm so glad that you spoke to that and in a good positive way. Thank you so much. I'm honored that you came on this podcast, especially because you're from my community. You're part of my nation. We're all related in that sense, knowing that you're dealing with this raid, you're dealing with the pandemic, you're dealing with all of the other issues that we have to face on a day-to-day -day basis, but you still took the time to help educate everybody and others, and you're really representing our community so well. And so I, I can't thank you enough for all the time that you've taken to do this today. Alan Sitnogama, and thank you and all my relations. <laughs> Awesome. And thank you also to our podcast listeners for tuning in to the Warrior Life podcast. And after listening to this episode, listen again, share it with everyone, find ways that you can help, take up the chief's call to learn more, do more, be an ally, and take action against these long-standing injustices by governments and police forces and industry against our people. We are literally just trying to make our way like everybody else in a good way and share with everybody. So till next time, keep living a warrior life. Well, I'll leave.